0: Lord, allow us to understand your word with clarity. Bring conviction where it's necessary. Bring comfort where it's needed. We ask now that you would work in your people for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start off in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and we're going to see this. We're tempted to be wise without God. Look at Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to uh, to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What exactly is happening here? I mean, just consider the craziness. There's a talking snake that moves into this garden and starts speaking to a woman. And let's just talk about this. In verse 1, he calls, he calls out and he just says, Hey, there's this serpent that's more crafty than any other animal that God had created. And what's that mean? If at first, uh, we, we have to really talk about what, what are we speaking of here? This talking snake. How do we understand it? Let's be sure that, that this isn't just your typical animal. This is a... a kind of incarnation of who satan is right we can understand this because first it talks you don't see a lot of talking snakes do you and second the bible kind of actually interprets this event for us in revelation chapter 12 um Revelation says this, the dragon was thrown down and that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. It describes Satan as the ancient serpent, this snake that exists in Genesis chapter three. But this serpent was crafty and even as Jesus described who Satan was in John chapter eight, we have the verse on the screen here in front of us, in John chapter eight, verse 44, Jesus says this, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so Jesus summarizes who is Satan with these two qualifications. First, he says he's a murderer. And second of all, he says that he's a liar. And of course, from our passage this morning, we realize that his murderer nature and his lying nature come together because as God has promised that anybody who disobeys and eats of this tree of knowledge of good and evil will surely die, Satan is manipulating this to lie to Adam and Eve and to bring about their consequential death. Look at how he does this in verses four or 2 and 4 and 5. And what he does is he starts to just naturally raise questions. Look at verse 2 with me. Uh, or excuse me, actually, halfway through verse 1, he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say, If we kind of break down this phrasing, we see that Satan actually uses a different name for God. Throughout Genesis 2 and 3, we've consistently seen that God is called the Lord God. It's actually an amalgamation of two different terms, Yahweh and Elohim, and it smashes them together to give us this transcendence of who God is. And when Satan kind of sneaks into the garden, he cuts off one half of that name and he dumbs down the character of God as he speaks to Eve. But the second part is he actually raises doubt with the way he phrases it. Did God actually say? He kind of actually pinpoints this weakness in Eve so that he can center on it and he can draw out this doubt in her. But That's not all he says. He says in verses uh, 4 and 5, Oh, excuse me. He goes on and he says this. uh, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, we know that that's not what God has said. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, we saw this last week. God says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. And Satan is turning it around to say the exact opposite and asking this in question form to Eve. So Satan's taking God's generous provision and he minimizes it. He centers on the one thing that's forbidden and then he uh, kind of manipulates it. It's kind of raising the question in Eve's mind saying, "Is, Is God holding out on me? Is God withholding something good from me? It's the original kind of temptation to FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. So he goes on with his temptation in verses 4 and 5. Eve responds in verse 3, and then Satan replies in verses 4 and 5. He says, You will not surely die. This is a direct contradiction to God's word, isn't it? What we saw. In verse two, as insinuation now becomes direct contradiction in verses four and five, he just completely undermines what God had said in genesis two seventeen "In the day that you eat of it, you will what surely die." And now Satan is here saying, "You will not surely die." And in verse five, Satan builds an alternate truth to replace the truth which, which God had given. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. He says here, God knows. He knows. He's withholding from you. He's holding himself back because he doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to maintain that gap between you and him. And this is how you close the gap, so to speak. And so he says, your eyes will be opened Oddly enough, this isn't quite a lie, it's more of a half-truth, right? Later on in verse 7, Adam and Eve eat the fruit and their eyes are open. But it doesn't quite turn out the way Satan has promised. He says, you will be like God. And underneath this is this lie that the only thing that exists in the gap between man and God is this knowledge of good and evil. And if Adam and Eve take of this fruit and they eat and they become knowledgeable of good and evil, they're going to be like God denying all of these other things about God's eternity, God's transcendence. Let's look at how Eve responds to these questions in verse 3. See, Eve responds, she's just, she's just confused. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tree, or the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now Eve is kind of using this dumbed-down title for God again. She's borrowed the language of Satan. She's not saying the Lord God. She's not giving him his transcendence. She's not honoring him. She's speaking lower of him as Satan has. But further, she, she even kind of is confused about the nature of the commandment. It's not just that she can't eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. She's not even supposed to touch it. She's not even supposed to go near it. She's, if she touches it, she'll surely die. That's the way she presents it there in verse 2. And that's surely not what God has said. See, what, what this stands out to show is that God, uh, or Satan, is always kind of attacking the centrality of his word. Satan is always kind of attacking the centrality of God's word. We see this in Matthew chapter 4 when when Jesus is tempted by Satan. We see these three different temptations that are brought before God. And here they are on the screen. Temptation number one is to turn stones into bread. Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days. And and Satan comes to him in verse 3 and he says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And, And Jesus responds and he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out. From the mouth of God. This is a quotation directly from the book of Deut- Deuteronomy. But the second temptation is more interesting. Satan comes to him and he says, hey, throw yourself down. Say, well, that's really tempting, right? He takes him up to this high point in the temple, and he, he asks him to throw himself down, and then he quotes scripture. He says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. See, Satan starts quoting Scripture to Jesus. He's actually presenting an alternate reality to Jesus so that Jesus would undermine the faith that he has in his Father and that he would turn to Satan and believe in his interpretation of the Bible. Don't forget, Satan knows the Scriptures better than we do. Satan uses Scripture to make an alternate truth for us. And here, in Matthew chapter 4, he asserts that this would be in line with, with God's word. But praise be to God this morning that, that Jesus didn't just take on our sinfulness. He actually lived in perfect obedience to God's law, didn't he? And so Jesus rebuffs all of these temptations. And so what we see is we see Satan just kind of always undermining the word of God. God's word brings life, but Satan Satan's lives inevitably Lies inevitably bring death. See, Satan is this murderer who uses the weapon of of lies and misconstrual and distortion of the truth to bring up about his desire. I heard this story this week, and I, I can't attest to its truthfulness, but um, there's a story that was shared on this podcast that there was a video that went viral uh, sometime in the last six months or so. Actually, the podcast is older than that, so in the last few years. But this video shows a, a woman who's supposedly a, an American feminist, and so she's tired of this thing that you see on subways. It's called, uh, what is it, manspreading, where you spread your legs and you crowd everybody else out. And so this woman is going, and she's pouring chlorine on on the laps of all of these men. And it's just kind of this video of, like, we're going to stick it to the man, we're going to assert our feminine authority, and we're going to... F- pour. Uh, Poor bleach and right on these men. Well, it comes out later on that this video was entirely constructed by a foreign government. That it was actually entirely initiated by um, agents or some other thing. That all of these people were employees of a foreign government. And it was produced and put out on the web to kind of undermine our togetherness as a culture. To actually raise the ire, the division between men and women that they had already perceived that exists in our culture. See, when, when enemies come into us or into our midst and they, they give false information, it actually undermines us. It, it cuts at our unity. See, misinformation is a powerful thing. But look what happens in verses 6 and 7. See, Satan brings this misinformation, this lie, and he he distorts the truth. And in verses 6 and 7, it actually works. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was the delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, what it describes is that Eve sees the fruit. And look at the progression that happens there in verse 6, right? She sees that it was good for food. It, it can fill that hungry spot in your stomach. That it was a delight to the eyes. That it, it filled this aesthetic desire. That it was desired uh, to make one wise. That it meets a desire for significance to be like God. And so Eve takes and she eats. And what happens in verse 6 is that she also gives to Adam. It's interesting to note the order that gets reversed here. Adam receives the commandment from God, and we assume that he's meant to kind of pass on the commandment to his wife, Eve. But what happens here is that Eve disobeys the commandment of God and then passes that disobedience on to Adam. And guys, before we get self-righteous about this whole situation, Adam seems to have been standing here the entire time, as as the text says that she handed it to Adam who was with her in verse 6. And so this breakdown highlights the passivity of Adam. We might be concerned now in our day and age about toxic masculinity, but actually what we should be concerned about is passive masculinity. The idea that we would stand idly by while the women that we care for are are tempted, are pushed into false belief. We'll see more of this next week. But it's in this moment, right here in Genesis chapter 3, that death enters the world. And Adam and Eve don't physically drop dead. They don't close their eyes, their heart stops beating. But the things set in motion bring about the physical and spiritual death of Adam and and Eve. See, what this will result in by the end of Genesis 3 is that Adam and Eve will be removed from the garden by God Himself. They'll no longer have access to the tree of life, and so they will no longer have eternity in their midst. Sure enough, they will return to dust because of God's curse against them and their sin. What verse 7 tells us is that the the, the results are are less than promised, right? We see in verse 7 what what happens. Look, the eyes of both of them were opened, right? That sounds good enough. That sounds positive. We all want our eyes open, kind of this matrix moment where we see the world clearly. But look at the rest of verse 7. What happens? They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. See, what we see is what, what Eve saw back in verse 6, that the, the apple was good for food, that it was delight to the eyes, that it was desired to make one wise, all of that reverses here in verse 7. The eyes were opened. It, it didn't make them wise. It just gave them new knowledge of their own sinfulness. It wasn't a delight to the eyes. It really showed them that they were naked. It wasn't so much good for food. They, they had to go back to the trees and make loincloths for themselves. See, this shows our fundamental brokenness in our sin. See, not only does Satan try to manipulate God's word, Satan does this thing that he plays upon our desires that are already within us. Isn't that what happens with Eve? He, Eve looks and says that this, this is desirable for food. It can make me wise. It's beautiful. James 1 says this, that each one is tempted and carried away by his own lusts, that there's this lust that's latent within us, that's bound up in who we are as people. You can't take a Christian and just pull them out of society and put them in a monastery somewhere or whatever else and, and make them live more Christianly because of their environment. That's not what this is saying. It's saying that our heart is bound up with this sinful humanity, and we desire the wrong things. Augustine is a, a theologian from the 4th century, and he had this idea that he called um, Disordered loves what happened is at age 19, Augustine started to read Cicero. And Cicero was this kind of secular philosopher, and he said this, he said, that many set out to be happy, but the majority of us are thoroughly wretched. And so Augustine responds with this, he says, but a, a living, a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. Stick with me. To love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved or fail to love what is to be loved or have a greater love for things that should be loved less or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. You're saying, Jason, what is this guy saying? He's saying that we love things wrongly. That while our supreme affection should be for the God who created us in his image, what we do is we settle for other things to love. And in this moment, Eve kind of sees the goodness of this fruit as she perceives it, and she loves something more than God. She's willing to disobey God, to set aside that love for a different object. We do the same, don't we? See, Augustine saw that when we love wrongly, we live immorally. Stated differently, proper desire precedes proper living. And the problem is that all of us has this, right? We all have this desire to love something more than God, to disobey what God has for us. But it's worth noting this morning that our disordered loves, they never really reveal what they promise to reveal to us. They never really give what they promised. You ever see that? You see a friend who's pursuing money. And they eventually come to this point where they're just, they're tired. They're tired of the long hours. They're tired of constantly being fearful about their investments. They're tired of all of these things and they're just pursuing and pursuing and eventually they wear themselves out. There's a writer by the name of David Foster Wallace. He was a writer in the 80s and 90s. Eventually he took his own life. But he wrote this really interesting passage that I wanted to share with you Uh, this morning from David Foster Wallace. He says, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship, and an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual-type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if uh, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over things or over others to keep the fear at bay. And worship your intellect. to Be seen as, as someone smart, you will end up being feeling so stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on. See, as Wallace said, when our disordered loves are pursued, they always demand more. When we love something other than God, they're always asking more from us, more sacrifice, more time, more effort. And when we fail to follow those things, they never actually forgive us. So what happens in verses eight through thirteen is we see the natural consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. Look at verse eight through thirteen. You see, our disobedience comes with consequence. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, "Where are you?" And he said, "I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked." And I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said to the said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. Our sin kind of comes with these natural consequences, right? And in this passage, we see with clarity some of the effects of what happens. First, we see we see fear. In verses eight and nine, there's this dialogue between God and Adam. And Adam calls it out, right? Verse 10, he says. God calls them, says, Where are you? And, and Adam responds, he said, I heard. The sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. It's fear. The relationship that had formerly brought Adam so much joy to be in the presence of God now is marked by fear. He's afraid. He's not just afraid, though. He's guilty. Verse 11, God asks this. He said, who told you that you were naked, right? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat of? Who told you that you were naked? And what happens is this series of blame shifting that goes on. So Adam says in verse 12, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I I ate. Think about the implication of this, right? It's not just the woman's fault. It's God who put the woman with Adam. It's his fault. God, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me this fruit, and I ate. See, it's not my fault. I've got guilt, but it was somebody else's fault. And sure enough, when God asks Eve about the situation in verse 13, she says, The serpent deceived me. It's not my fault, God. I, the serpent deceived me. So there's this sense of guilt that's there. So we have fear and guilt, and then there's shame. The very first thing they do after they eat is they, they cover up their nakedness with fig leaves, they, they try to hide their shame. See, Adam and Eve know that they're not what God created them to be, and so they feel this pervasive sense of shame, that they don't add up, that they're not what God had created them to be. And so all of this kind of culminates, right, fear in the presence of God and guilt before God that they're trying to blame shift and shame and and, and this covering of, of the sin and of the body parts and everything else so that it all culminates to say, this relationship has been broken. What was once this beautiful Eden, this beautiful paradise, has now been marked by wrongdoing before God that has spoiled everything. But here's the thing. We can't miss something that's really important about this passage. If we go back through verses 8 through 13, and we just consider God's involvement in this, I think we might find grace Notice how God gently reorders Adam and Eve's disordered love through the process of inviting them to confession. And so what happens is that God walks into the garden in the cool of the day. God just happens to enter the scene when Adam and Eve are hiding. I read a commentator this week who said that even God here is coming to seek and save that which was lost And what happens is this series of gentle questions that invites them to realize their state before him. And so the first question is this, where are you? And don't think for a second that God doesn't know the answer of where Adam and Eve are. You you read the New Testament, you read the statements of Jesus, and Jesus tells us that God has the, the hairs on our head numbered, that he knows the falling of every sparrow to the ground and now he's kind of lost track of the one human being that's on the earth? Of course not. What's his purpose then? Why is he asking, where are you, Adam? He's asking because he wants Adam to recognize that he's hiding. And so in verses 9 and 10, Adam's response is self-exposing, isn't it? He says, I was afraid. Because I was naked, so I hid. And God has gently kind of drawn Adam out. The second question follows right on the heels. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I told you not to eat? The second question arises. Does God not know the answer to this question? Of course he does. See, once again, our God gently probes. Don't hear in these words the harshness of condemnation. If God was going to bring justice, Adam and Eve would have been dead right there in the spot. Instead, God invites them to recognize their wrong. How did you come to know of your nakedness? And the follow-up question, did you eat of the tree I had forbidden you to eat from? So Adam answers, and then God follows with another question, this one directed at Eve. What is this you have done? Tell me more about this. And all of this kind of culminates to this statement by Eve in verse 13 where she says, hey, the serpent deceived me and then there's this confession, I ate. See, the questions asked by God are the beginning of a thread of grace that if we were to kind of pick it up and just pull on it, would lead us all the way to Calvary. The God who lovingly draws out sinners will eventually send His sinless Son to a cross. Because the heart of man is so set against God's Word, they will crucify Him. This system of of belief, this autonomy that, that they've established in the garden is so broken down that it will crucify the Son of God. And a great twist of irony, God uses man's obstinance to His Word who has taken on flesh to bring about mankind's redemption. Our heart is so hardened that when God sent himself, his son, into our midst, we killed him. You see how God shows his love for us in these questions? How he quietly, patiently draws out the guilt of Adam's heart. He lovingly invites Eve to recognize her sin. Isn't this the same heart that is expressed in giving Jesus at Calvary? Isn't this the same... Heart that was expressed to Abraham in Genesis 12? Isn't this the same heart who sent the prophets to correct his people? Isn't this the same heart that equipped and sent out the apostles that sends us out in mission? Isn't this the same God who, through the use of his word, invites us to confess and repent and to turn to God? Isn't that the heart of our God this morning? And it all kind of builds to this culmination in verse 13 with these two simple words I ate. I did what you commanded me not to do. And I need grace and mercy. See, too often as, as church people now in the 21st century, what we do is we talk about Christ and we talk about brokenness in terms, well, we, we talk about Christ and we talk about religion in terms of personal brokenness, about coming up against obstacles bigger than us. And we want to claim a little bit of Jesus to kind of help get us over the hump of the difficulty in our life. But what God is saying here and laying out with absolute and utter clarity this morning is that you and I don't just need a little a little fuel additive to help us along we need rebuilt our systems are broken down and we are marked by fear and guilt and shame And what needs to happen is God needs to replace my record of wrongs against him day after day, moment after moment, minute after minute of just violating his word, and he needs to replace it with the righteous record of his own son, Jesus Christ. That's what I need. I don't need just a little bit of help to get beyond my difficulty in life, I need renewal and renovation. Because right here, a little bit of sin, a little bit of disobedience wrecks the whole thing, doesn't it? We might say, well, I'm just a small sinner. I've just just only broken these few little bits and pieces of God's law. The book of James says, if you've broken one, you've broken the whole thing. We all need this mercy from God, and we need to come before God and confess and say, God, I ate. I did the forbidden thing that you told me not to do, and I need renovation. I need complete and utter overhaul before you in Christ. See, this morning, God has a means of dealing with fear, guilt, and shame before him, and it's the means of drawing us into confession Our systems of dealing with that fear, guilt, and shame are broken, aren't they? We might say things like, "You know, I'm not one who airs my dirty laundry. I'm I'm a private person, and so I don't talk about my brokenness. I don't talk about my sinfulness." This morning, God invites us to this pattern of confession, James. Five says, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. Healing comes on the other side of saying the same things about as God about our sin. We have these strategies for dealing with, with our own fear and guilt and shame. Some of us, you know, we, we use medical means. Sometimes there's, there's drugs involved, illegal or legal. Sometimes we bury our sin. We just kind of press it down. And we tell our things, just keep grinding, keep working, and all of this will go away. We'll just be able to kind of ignore all of our sinfulness, all of our fear, all of our guilt, all of our shame. We'll just be able to pack it away and stuff it down. Some of us just blame others. And we say, if my dad wasn't my dad, I wouldn't be the way I am. If I wasn't raised in the environment I was raised in, I wouldn't be how I am today. And I'm going to tell you that all of these systems just fall apart. The more you try to pack down fear, guilt, and shame, the more they just rise right up. And the more you try to blame shift to someone else for what you have brought into your life, the more it will just come back twice as hard. But God gives us this means of confession that we would admit to ourselves and to others that what God says about us is right. We're all familiar with 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God shows us that the means by which we get past guilt, get past shame, get past fear, is this confession, this statement about my sin. The word confession in that passage is actually the word homo legio. You can hear the two parts, right? We're, we're used to the word homo, it means same as. The word logeo is it's like the word logos word, it means to say the same thing as what God says about our sin. It's actually, I'm going to say what God says about what I'm doing. And so if I'm marked by lust, I'm going to mark it as lust and say, this is wrong before God. If I'm marked by greed, I'm going to say, this is wrong before God. If I'm marked by lying, I'm going to say, this lying is wrong before God. And so as I recognize it before God and I recognize it before man, it sucks the toxicity out of the air. It draws the poison out of the wound so that we can be renewed and restored in our relationship with God in Christ. You see that? Do you see how confession is the means that God gives for us to move beyond our sin? And if we don't confess, those things just hang in the air. They just stay there. Whether between you and someone else, a broken down relationship, or between you and God, if you do not confess those things, they will just remain and they will grow. This morning we recognize that confession's God wrought. If we look at our passage this morning, it's God who initiates this pattern of confession, isn't it? God comes into the garden and he starts gently prodding with questions, drawing Adam and Eve into this point of confession. To kind of bring this full circle... The recognition is that you and I can only confess because of the cross. It's at the cross that Jesus took on fear and guilt and shame so that you and I could own our sin with confidence. Think about it for just a second. When Jesus went to the cross, what does he pray in the garden? He's sweating blood, literally. He's sweating there and he's saying, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Right? That's an expression of Fearfulness. And so he takes on our fear. He takes it to the cross. He takes on our guilt so that First Peter chapter 2 describes that he's like this lamb. It goes before the shearers, is silent, Isaiah 53. He takes our guilt to the cross and pays for it in full. He takes our shame. You realize that when they crucify Jesus, they strip him down to the point that he's naked. He's there exposed on a cross. The nakedness that Adam and Eve notice in Genesis chapter 3 is eventually taken to the cross in Christ so that you and I would no longer feel that sense of shame. See how how God has fully provided for what we broke down in Genesis 3. God has fulfilled in, in John and Matthew, Mark and Luke that all of our fear and guilt and shame is stripped away in Christ, and that you and I can confidently bring our confession to Him and to one another. And we can confidently become before one another and say, in the cross, Jesus has fully paid for this. Isn't that the point of Romans 8, verse 1? There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're no longer condemned. We can own our guilt. We can own our shame. We can own our fear before one another because Christ has paid for those things in full. He's resurrected in power and he's no longer bound to those things. I want to pray this morning that God allows us to sense our need of confession. I just want to give an open invitation. Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I've never done that, I've never confessed that I'm a sinner. And I've never found the grace of God in Christ. I've never claimed that. I, I need that. I'm recognizing this morning that I am marked by fear and guilt and shame. And I need the grace of God through Jesus Christ. I, I would just plead with you to come and talk with myself or Brian or the tall guy, Ryan. He's around here somewhere. Anyway, oh, he went to the, he's somewhere else. Anyway, come and talk with us. If you're here this morning, you're a Christian and you're saying, I'm, I'm being entangled by this sin like that Hebrews 12 sense that I'm just constantly getting tripped up in this same sin and I need to confess so that I might find healing. I just invite you, come and speak. There's going to be times where one of us comes to you and we own our sinfulness. We are a body of people that are marked by, by weakness and frailty and we need grace and we need to extend grace to one another. I want to pray that God makes us a body that learns how to confess that learns how to flee to the cross, that learns how to be a gospel-rich culture that remind one another of the goodness of God in Christ. Say, you're no longer bound to fear, guilt, and shame anymore. Christ has crucified and has been raised to new life so that we can live in victory over those things. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for grace, for mercy that you've extended to us that we didn't deserve But now you have given us victory over fear and guilt and shame. And so, God, we thank you. We praise you that you have been resurrected to glory, that you now have Jesus seated at your right hand. His work is finished and complete so that we might no longer be marked by fear and guilt and shame. We might no longer be condemned, but might find grace in our time of need. We thank you for these things. We pray, Lord, that you would make us a confessing people, because we have confidence in Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sin. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.